Good morning. It's great to see everybody here uh, here this morning. So, to start off this morning, allow me to tell you a quick story. It was in the midst of college midterms is where this story begins. It's about 11 p.m., sitting around a group of friends in a study room with a group project due at midnight, and we're finishing up um, the middle of midterms before we can go home and celebrate Christmas. And there's a lot of different things on my mind here, and we, we finally are able to, to persevere. We, we encourage each other on. We fight, and we accomplished our group project, turned it in on the deadline, another semester down. We decided we wanted to celebrate. Now, I was in college in Chicago, and when you are in Chicago in the middle of midterms, it means one thing. It means a lot of things, but at this point, it meant one thing, winter. And so if we wanted to go celebrate somewhere, we had to ask the question, was it worth the effort going into the cold, going out and, and, and going to wherever we wanted to? And we decided, yeah, it's worth it. So we decided, you know, we're all adults now. We're in college now. We can make our own choices. We want to go out to a place called Insomnia Cookie. I don't know if you've ever heard of this place, but Insomnia Cookie is a place that for some reason is cleverly located by any major college campus, and it serves the purpose of exactly what we wanted. We wanted to go and just enjoy the end of the semester and have an overpriced, freshly baked cookie because we're adults and we can do this. What's my dad going to do? Tell me now. So we go out and we brave the cold and we, we were all held up in our big winter jackets and our sweat, wet sweatpants as we were trying to be comfy to prepare for studying and, and we're, we're fighting to get there to get to insomnia cookie. The cookies aren't that good, but we really wanted them. And when we're on the way, you could hear it before you could see it. We heard somebody talking through a microphone on the streets of Chicago. And we were in a fairly busy part of town. It's a place called Old Town, located near Moody Campus. And if you're in the, sitting walking on the streets of any major city and you hear somebody speaking through a microphone, who knows what they're going to be talking about? You just kind of don't know. But as we walk closer and closer, we begin to hear what this individual is saying. It starts out quiet, but it gets louder and louder the closer we get. And the more I make out what this individual is saying, the more I feel my, my gut kind of turning and my stomach wrenching by what is he's saying. It's, it's, over, it's an oversimplified thing. You hear an individual just asking this question to anybody that's walking by. Have you repented? You over there, have you repented? What about you all? Have you all repented? Just repeating this over and over. You don't know what you're repenting from. You don't know what we're talking about. It's just this question. And as me and my friends get closer, I, I feel he's, he's in the way of, it, of, of getting to insomnia cookie. And so we kind of got to get through. 
And so we, we walk by. And for some reason, I don't know why he looked at me and my group of friends, but he picked this out specifically. He said, you group of college kids, have you repented before going to the club? And I'm like, dude, we're in sweatpants. And it was just this, it was an odd experience, we, but we, we were able to get through it. We went, we got our overpriced cookies, and by the time we came back, he was gone. And I just remember sitting there saying, what are you even trying to say right now? What are you even trying to tell people? I'm here, as I can imagine what you're saying, me being someone that's grown up in the church, you're trying to encourage people to repent of something. But I, who knows that here? And I'm not here to talk about the validity of what this guy's doing and street preaching and all that sort of stuff. That's not the point. But what I think I want to do is I want to zero in on this situation and say that when people in this world and perhaps when people listening in this room or listening online think of the word repentance, you think of a situation similar to the one that I came across on a snowy winter night just trying to go get some cookies. You hear the word repentance in this, this, almost this anxiety might build up inside of you. You might, your mind might go to that scene or your mind might go to a scene like the one you're sitting in right now and perhaps you feel that anxiety right now of somebody up front yelling at you. I'm not trying to yell at you. I project my voice a lot. I've been told relentlessly that I need to quiet down sometimes and so... So I'm not trying to yell and, ah. but I think when we think of repentance, we think of somebody on, a, on an elevated platform talking down to a group of people, and you've, there, there's, this, there's this connection between this word and a feeling of shame, and a, a feeling of fear, and, 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 and in extreme forms, perhaps a, a fire and brimstone-esque feeling that comes with the word Repentance. It's made some people want to avoid the word altogether. But we have to recognize the word is found in the Bible. And we also have to recognize that somehow, some way, for some reason, God commands us in the Bible to do repentance. And so we have to figure out what's going on here. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to work out a proper, a proper definition of what repentance really is. Because I think this, this thought process, this narrative that we picture of, of the angry street preacher or the, the, the bustling person on the platform in front of a church service or, or the maybe even you could go so far as to say that the judgmental individual just saying you all just need to repent. I think that's a misguided idea of what the Bible truly tells us repentance is. And I think when we look to Scripture, we'll find that repentance doesn't need to be this scary thing. But repentance is a beautiful, God-given commandment that leads to peace, that leads to joy, that leads to a, a lack of shame and a lack of guilt. 
And so that's what I want us to figure out this morning. What is a good biblical definition of repentance? And the way that I want to do that this morning is by turning in Scripture to the book of Psalms, specifically Psalm 51. You can turn there now. Open up your Bibles and turn to Psalm 51. And through going through this psalm, it will help us to understand what the Bible defines as repentance. So if you have a chance, open your Bibles, turn there. If you have your phone, pull out your phone, turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm 51. Now, Psalm 51 gives us a little bit of a grace period here. It gives us a little bit of a benefit that some psalms don't. This psalm has a prescription ahead of the actual psalm, where not only it tells us who wrote the psalm, but also when the psalm was written. It gives us a, a bit of a, 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 an edge to be able to understand more of what the psalm is trying to say. And so if you were to look at the prescription on Psalm 51, it says this, to the choir master, a psalm of David. So it's a Davidic psalm, David, the king of Israel, wrote it. When did he write it? When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So what are we talking about here? If you go to, you don't have to turn there, I can turn there for you. 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12 tells us the story of what is happening here and why David wrote this psalm. So, giving us a little bit of the context, you can turn there if you wish, but I'm going to give you a little bit of the context right now. David had just become the king of Israel. God had worked through, through ups and downs, highs and lows, sufferings and joys in David's life to bring him to the point of being the king of Israel that God had chosen. And, and David became king. He became a very good king. He conquered and he, 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 he was able to unite the kingdom for the first time. Before David, different members of Israel wouldn't have thought of themselves as Israelites, but they would have been in separate tribes. I'm from Judah. Oh, I'm from Gad. I'm from uh, different tribes of Judah, or from Israel. It would be like to say, we live in the United States, but I don't call myself an American. I'm a Michigander. David, for the first time, was able to pull the nation together so that they called themselves Israelites, God's chosen people. And things were going well for David. He was doing well. There was hope. There was joy. There was perhaps even different levels of peace in Israel's lands. And then we get to chapter 11, where David, David finds a woman, or he sees a woman named Bathsheba. She's the wife of one of his military leaders, a gentleman by the name of Uriah. He sees her, he sees her actually naked, bathing, and he decides to call her to his palace, where he in turn has an affair with her. Well, a little while later, they find out she's pregnant. Ooh, you can't hide that for too long. And so he gets to this moment and he, he decides in his own mind that we gotta, we gotta, we gotta fix this situation. How are we gonna fix this situation? Well, first he tries to get Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, 
to sleep with his wife, but Uriah doesn't for one reason or the other, being in military command and being out and on the field and battling, and so he's not able to, to come back. And so David decides to cover up the whole scandal by writing to his military leaders and commanding them to leave Uriah on the field of battle alone so that he is killed. So David has an affair. He covers up the affair and through his word kills one of his friends, his comrades in his military. Bathsheba becomes a widow. David comforts her. They get married. Problem solved. Well, God sees all, right? And God uses a prophet by the name of, name of Nathan to confront David. And the prophet goes to David, and it's recorded in, in, in 2 Samuel 12, where the prophet goes to David and is able to reveal to him how great of an evil, how evil of a thing David just did. And then Nathan gives a curse to David based on what God told him to say. Nathan says this in verse 7, and it's going to go through verse 15. Let me read this to you. Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are guilty of this sin. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the, with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. So this is the context to Psalm 51. Not only does David finally realize the evil that he has committed, the sin he has committed, but he, he feels the weight of the punishment of God saying, you've done this wrong, therefore here is your punishment. Your kingdom is going to be known as a kingdom of war, constantly attacked on all sides. There's somebody from your own house, someone from your own blood, one of your own family members who is going to take your throne. Oh, and also this child, this child that you had with Bathsheba, this child will die. What a gut-wrenching 
thing to hear. What an utterly horrific thing to hear. What would you do in this situation? How would you react in this situation? That's for your own imagination, but instead, we find out David's reaction in Psalm 51. Read with me the first two verses. We're going to get to the introduction here. The first two verses of the introduction of the psalm, it says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. If you ever want to know what a psalm is going to be about nine times out of ten, maybe 99 times out of 100, read the introduction. The introduction provides us a lens into what the psalmist is going to do through this psalm. And here, David immediately starts out with a desire, with an ask to God saying, Have mercy on me, O God. The very first words that David utters is him sitting in complete Submission to God. Saying, have mercy on me. Mercy, if you're looking for a definition of mercy, mercy is not receiving something you deserve. It's compared to grace, which is receiving something you don't deserve. David's saying, I deserve a horrible punishment for this. God, do not let me receive this punishment. Have mercy on me. Mercy on him according to what? Why should God do this? According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. The posture, as I said before, that David is taking is he is, he is completely and utterly powerless. Imagine a king of a nation being utterly powerless. A, nation is, a king is used to some form of power. A king is used to authority. This king has none. And notice also as we go through this psalm, the amount of times that David asks God to do something. David isn't here saying, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to make it better. I'm, trust me, God, stay with me. I know I messed up, but come on, hold, don't, don't let me lose you. Don't let me lose you. I've got this. We'll figure this out. See if you can't count how many different times David asks God of something and how many times David says he's going to do something. The number is is very interesting. But that's our introduction. That's the setting the stage here for this psalm. In the first section we're going to read is verses 3 through 6. Please read these sections with me. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive of me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. There is so much in this psalm. Half an hour doesn't do it justice. But even just in this section alone, David is able to reveal and show that he knows what he's done wrong. It's not like he's clueless. 
He's not clueless. He's not saying, why is all this bad stuff happening to me, God? He says, no, there is an evil that I have done, and I know it to be true. And he he calls it a number of different things. Transgressions, sin, what is evil, iniquity. He calls it these several different words. And all these words have their own different components of what this sin is. Transgression. When you have an agreement with somebody, but you break that agreement, is when you transgress somebody. Sin. Sin is one of those words that we throw out easily. We just kind of say, but what actually is sin? As a blanket definition, sin is whenever we we do something that is against what God wants us to do. It's not just doing something bad, but it's God wants us to go left and we go right. Or you're looking at it the opposite way. You're saying right, left. But sin is when we deliberately choose one way or the other, willingly or unwillingly, we choose to go against God's intended purpose and design for us. This is sin. We get to iniquity and it is an evil thing. Iniquity is an evil thing. When you, have an, when you do an iniquity, you do an evil thing. There's almost this, this sense of an evil spiritual power with this word, iniquity. It is something not, of, not des- from God. God is good. This iniquity is something opposite of God. So he's using these different words to show us one thing, that he knows the sin that he has committed. And that is the first step in our definition of repentance. The first step of our definition of repentance is an awareness of our sin. We repent so we can be aware. If we do not know the things that we have done against God, if we do not know the the evil within us, then we cannot begin the journey of repentance and I think this is where the, perhaps the scary and the, the judgmental and the, the, the fire and brimstone-esque part of our thought process of repentance begins to set in. Because it's somebody up front saying, you have done horrible things. You are a bad person. You have done this. You, you know, it's just this kind of, it's, 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 it's personal. There's a personal aspect of it. It's a, it's a claim of somebody's character. And in the wrong hands, yes, it can be. But I don't think that that's how God views repentance, at least here at this place. I think he, he may think of it more like this, is that when we sin, we sin against God. When we do evil, we, we do evil before a good God. And I think just in any way of any relationship that we have on this earth, if we do evil towards somebody on this earth, would we not want to learn about it? Or if I have any sort of imperfection on me, I, would I not want to know about it? Let me give you a silly example before I give you a serious example. You go through your day. If you've ever had this before, it's frustrating. But you go through your day. You talk to a bunch of people. You go to work. You hang out. You, you whatever. You come home. You look in the mirror. And you've got spinach stuck in your teeth. Or your hair looks horrible. Or your clothes don't match. Or whatever it is. And did anybody tell you about it? No! And you're like, why didn't somebody tell me about this? I want to know about this. Silly example, yes. Let's take it up a notch. If I, I as Preston, have done anything to anybody 
in this room that has caused you harm, if I in any way have sinned against anybody in this room, I want to know about that. I would hope that you might feel courage to come to me and let me know and say, Preston, you did this thing that one time and that was, you know, it, 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 you, you sinned against me. You did something wrong against me. And I have to know and develop an attitude where I'm willing to humble myself so that I can be aware that I did that and go, oh my word, I have no idea. And for you, if, if you look at your, your spouse or your family or your friends or, your, or whatever, your kids, and, and you've done something wrong to them, would you not want them to tell you as well? Would you not want to know of the ways you've kind of been a jerk to somebody? If this is true in our personal lives with our relationships with people, why should this not also be true with our relationship with God? That's the first step of repentance, is an awareness of our sin before a good and holy God. If you want to know somebody who has a close relationship with God, then you need to know somebody who is a repentant person, who's constantly seeing the fact that they are full of wickedness and sin, and there's this burden that we bear, and that dishonors, and, it, and God is grieved by it. God is hurt by it. God is hurt by the things that we do that are wrong. God is hurt by our sin. And I've noticed that the more somebody knows God, the more they know their own sin. If you are sitting here and you're saying, I don't, how do I get closer to God? How do I know more about God? Sort of counterintuitively, I'd recommend, take a look at your own sin. Take a look at the things you do that grieve God and realize the trouble that we put ourselves in. So that's the first part of our definition of repentance, is an awareness of our sin. And if we stopped right here, there'd be no hope. If we stopped here, it's just life sucks. That's how it is. But the story does not end here. We continue. Verses 7 through 12. Please read these with me. David continues, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. David's purpose in this section changes. The first section was, I have sinned, there's these transgressions, there's these iniquities. Before you and you alone have I sinned. I've always been a sinner and sinned and my mother conceived me. And here we get to another point. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. What's he talking about here? Well, let's get a lesson on hyssop. Everyone's favorite Middle Eastern mystery herb and, and green and bushy substance. So hyssop, we don't exactly know exact, the exact kind of plant it was. There's a difference in translations. The different people have different ideas. But it would have been some sort of leafy, bushy, herby substance that would have grown like vines on walls. 
in the Middle East. And, and it, ha- it sort of kind of had this almost like how you might see poison ivy growing without the poison ivy part. And along with that, it had this aromatic, this, this smell to it. So that when you smelled it, it was like, it, you could, like when you smell mint, you know it's mint because of the minty smell. Hyssop has the hyssopy smell, so you know you're smelling hyssop. And it was involved in the sacrificial system that David was in. Because remember, we're in the Old Testament times. We're before the Messiah. We're before the cross. We're before Jesus. We're in a time where these people have been, have been told to follow the commandments of the law of Moses that involved a sacrificial system, which, would be, which is where animals would be killed to cover sins. Not forgive, but cover the sins. And a hyssop branch or hyssop would have been used in two different ways in the sacrificial system. Let me quickly share them with you. The first way would have been used in a, in a, in, in a type of sin offering. Israelites would make offerings to whenever they had committed a sin. They would have committed a sacrificial offering where they would have taken an animal, most likely a lamb or a goat or something of that nature, or if they couldn't afford it, a pigeon, and they would quite literally take a knife and cut the throat of the animal and the blood would spill and you would take a hyssop branch and you would this, this green branch with and, and and you would you would you would um rub it in the blood of the animal and you would take this branch and you would flick flick blood onto the altar in the temple And what this was supposed to represent is that the blood that was used to cover your sin is being put onto the altar where the presence of God would rest closest to, um, which altar was been closest to the Holy of Holies, which would have contained the presence of God. And so when you're flicking the blood onto the altar, there is this, this sort of meaning that's happening is your blood is going back to God. And this blood that's covering your sins is being put to God so that there would be, we would know that there would be a future payment it would be a, a metaphor, almost. Don't let that simplify what's happening here, though. The second way is that it would have been used in a burnt sin offering, where you would take specifically a bull, a male adult cow, and you would, that, that, that's a big animal, and you would take it to what was the, the place of the burnt offerings. It would have been this giant, almost grill that would have sat outside of the temple and the big fires coming off of it. And you would again take a knife and slit the throat of the cow and it would, it would die. And then, I don't know how they did this, but they would put the body of the cow onto the burnt offering. And they would take hyssop branches and they would put them in the fire as well. So that when the cow is burning and the the burnt offering is happening, you would smell the aromatic essence of the hyssop. So when when you smell that, you would make a connection that when I smell this, my sin is being covered. And so through this one verse alone, David is showing this next step in repentance. And we see it further along is that David is asking for forgiveness from the awareness of his sin. And that's the second step of repentance. First is knowing you have a sin. Second is asking God to forgive us of our sin. And notice the journey here in this section. We're not just, this is the main verse that talks about the forgiveness aspect of the actual offering. But David doesn't stop there. He continues. 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I was unaware that the ladies' event was doing Psalm 51 10 for the ladies' event. So that was a fun little coincidence that I found out. Hope you ladies are enjoying that. But what's interesting here is that salvation in David's sense doesn't just stop with the offering, but it continues through with a transformation of who he is as a person. He doesn't just get the offering and I'm done. But it's, it's an offering that leads to a heart change. He cannot remain the same person that he was when he committed the sins against Bathsheba and Uriah. David assumes that along with forgiveness comes a change in who he is as a person. Forgiveness cannot end with the covering or the conversion or the saving part. Forgiveness is a continuous thing. And he shows us here, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. And this is where we we can move forward to the New Testament, where all these sacrifices, these animals dying to cover our sins, were all an, an illusion, a pointing forward to one day in the fullness of time when God would send himself as Jesus Christ to die on the cross to not just cover our sins, but to pay for them. Just as the animal death covered sins, so does the death of God pay for sins. So that we don't have to keep going back to a sacrificial system. The final sacrifice has been made with the blood of Jesus on the cross. By his wounds, we are healed. And this forgiveness is something that we can have today. This, 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 we, we started out with an awareness of our sin and the burden that that leaves, the shame that we feel from the wrongs we commit. We carry that with us so much in life. The cross is an invitation to lose those burdens. The cross is an invitation to feel no shame. When we are aware of our sins, we ask God to forgive us of our sins, knowing that he will, that he already has. It's simply a truth that we need to affirm. And then there is growth. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Repentance points us to our need for God alone to forgive us of our sins. And repentance cannot stop at conversion. Repentance needs to be a daily part of who we are. Remember awareness? We need to be constantly aware of the sins we commit against God and constantly asking God for forgiveness. Believing the words of Scripture that he will be faithful to forgive us of our sins. That's the second part of our definition. An awareness of our sins, which leads to asking God to forgive us of our sins. Third part, verses 13 through 19. This will bring us to the end of the psalm. Read it with me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from, bo- from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. 
O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. The bowls will be offered on your altar. Notice the journey that David has gone on. He starts in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God. And then he gets to verse 13, and he goes through this point, and you almost, you feel the forgiveness that he feels with him. You see sort of a change in how he writes. Yes, he mentions, of course, needing salvation, still deliver me from blood guiltiness. But it's, my mouth will declare your praise. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. He ends the psalm by, by praying for his people. Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. There is a literal, you can see the change in the psalm. You can see the journey that he's been on. And I want to focus in on verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. The third part of repentance. First part was be aware. Second part is be forgiven. Third part is be used. If we end repentance at forgiveness, listen here. If we end repentance at forgiveness, that's a selfish salvation. Let me explain that. Verse 3, David says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Notice the parallel there. It's the exact same words, but he flips from the sinner to the one helping the sinner. He uses this experience. He says, this experience isn't just going to stay behind me, but this experience of how you have forgiven me and how you have have destroyed the sin in me is I'm going to use this experience to help others struggling with this sin. His sin doesn't remain in his closet. And he doesn't carry the sin as in carrying the burden, but he carries the memory of God forgiving him and working through him so that he can help others who have struggled in this sin. I think many times we hear the words of Scripture and say that we are forgiven. And that's good. Praise the Lord for that. But how much also do we still carry unnecessary shame of our sin? And there's a lot of psychological aspects to that and carrying shame and how that works and I'm in no way equipped to handle and, and have, handle that from a psychological perspective. But when we look at what scripture says is that once we have been forgiven, we have no need to carry the weight of our sin. Sometimes we still do and there's different reasons for why that may happen. But in many times that might make us feel cautious and sharing our journeys with others, talking about our sin struggles with others. But I think in doing that, we do a disservice to people around us who struggle with the same sins that we have. There is nothing new under the sun. We hide our sins. We hide our victories that God has done through us. 
And I think in that, we do a disservice to others struggling with that same sin. I, I almost want to think of this in this way, and I'm still working out this, this example, but sit with me here for a moment. I remember at one point, I went with my, uh, my wife and my in-law family, my father and mother-in-law, to one of their friends on Gull Lake. He is a, we went there to get on the boat and go right around Gull Lake. It was going to be a great time, and he um, when we walked into the house, the guy was talking to us, and he's an older guy. He's a dentist. He's doing this whole thing. He walks up to us, and he says, hey, you guys mind if I show you my game room? And I sat there, and I said, ooh, what is he, an arcade kind of guy? Does he have, like, pinball machines? Like, what's this guy mean by a game room? I was like, sure, why not? Of course, I'll be at your house. Well, we walk into a room, and it is this big room full of game not video games, but hunting game. I know, I had the same thought. I was like, oh, this makes sense. And you walk in and you're like, whoa, there is every animal you can think of in this man's room. You walk in and you see the obvious ones, deer, elk, you know, maybe some rabbits or squirrels, things like that. But then you get a little bit, you go, you go to a new continent and you see antelope. You see wildebeests. You see multiple lions. Multiple. Not just one, but plural. You see lions and crocodiles and leopards and all these different things. This man had a footstool of an elephant foot. This man killed an elephant. Now, he did it through fair trade, and he talked about this story of how he had official governmental people following him, so he was doing it legally by the country's standards, so it wasn't like he was doing anything sketchy biz. But this was so cool. And he had a story for every single animal. He talked about, oh, that lion, he, he went this way, and I, and, I, and I shot, but I missed, and then he went further, and then my, my son shot, and he got him. All right, here's the elephant, and we took down this elephant, and we used its meat to feed a village for like half a year. And he had all these stories of these victories over these animals. And I think many times we could be useful to, to think of our sin victories in this regard. The only difference is, is that God's the one that made the victory, not us. We didn't strike down that sin. God did it through us. And this guy was proud. And he was talking about it. He's like, here's what has happened. But when we look at a greater victory than taking down lions, the victory of destroying sin in our lives, we get uncomfortable with it. And I think discretion is useful here. Don't get up on the stage and perhaps share all of the sins. You know, find your place for it. There's a reason for that, right? Discretion is necessary. But if you have won sin battles in your life by the grace of God through repenting, then there's somebody else in this church that needs to hear that, that needs to know how God did it through you, that needs to know there's somebody else struggling with this sin, that needs to know that they could be relieved from this burden. And if David can do this with a very grievous sin, a sexual sin, can we not do the same? With all this being said, and here I'm finally going to close, we define repentance as an awareness of our sin. 
which leads to asking God to forgive us of our sin so that we can be used by God to share his love with those around us as his child. If we miss one part of the, the, this, this, this definition of repentance, we miss out on God's design for what repentance is supposed to be. We miss out on the ability to, to, to love and worship God for all that he can do through the evil of this world. Does he want us to sin? No. But can he work and use it for his glory? Absolutely. God can use your darkest times to bring glory to himself and to build up others. And that's my challenge for you this morning. Because we all have skeletons in our closets. We all do. And we all, and I don't think we, that God wanted us to just push them away and try to forget they're there. But God can use even our darkest times for his glory. And when we understand repentance properly, biblically, it leads to freedom in us, worshiping God as our Savior, and it leads to freedom in others who see that they can worship God as their Savior. And that is the biblical definition of repentance.